0: So Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at today. I'll read it, and we'll pray, and we'll come back and discuss it. 12 says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. 13. Enter through the narrow gates. For the gate is wide and the way is broad are easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are few who find it. Heavenly Father, Lord, open our eyes to see your truth. Open our eyes to just behold your beauty, God in the Scriptures. God, that we not only understand this doctrine of teaching God, but that we may live this out towards our brother and sister. Oh Lord, help us to be like you, Jesus, in this world. Help us to have eyes like you and a heart like you, God. And infections like you, God. Your caring heart for the broken, God. Help us to see people like you see people. To love like you love. Instruct us to your scriptures, instruct us to your word. Hallelujah. Amen. So, Jesus is now when you going through the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus is now bringing us to verse 12, which is the golden rule, kind of known as the golden rule. And if you are reading verse 12, when he says, and everything therefore... You should probably pause when you read that verse. The reason you should pause is because you should be maybe thinking that, hold on, Jesus is saying to treat other people how the way you want them to treat you, that this is the law and the prophets. Where did the law and the prophets come from? He was just talking about it in the previous verse, verse 11, teaching us about prayer, right? That's what we discussed last week. We discussed We talked about the persistency in prayer, right? To consistently ask, to consistently knock, to consistently seek. And that verse tells us that because if we who are evil know how to do good, that God is also going to give good gifts to His children. And then verse 12 transitions into, in everything therefore, where is the therefore then? How is this connected? If you're puzzled by that, like I have been for the past month, You're not alone. So many commentators, when they look at this verse, they have different interpretations. They have different understanding of how you connect this therefore in verse 12 to everything that Jesus just taught. Because normally when we hear therefore, you go back to the immediate verse that he was just speaking on, and it leads us into what he's explaining. That's what we understand in in, in studying scripture. That's what we see the therefores. But when it comes to this therefore, there's been many interpretations. John MacArthur, for example, he connects this therefore, verse twelve, with the previous teaching, verse um, seven through eleven, talking about God's about uh, prayer and, and being like God. As John Parker is saying. that we should look at this, and as God is being generous to us, we should be generous to others. And so he looks at the connection between verse twelve with verse seven through eleven in the teachings about prayer. But then you go to somebody like Mark Lloyd Jones. Martin, Lord, Joe, Lord uh, Jones, in his commentary on this text, he connects a therefore in verse 12 with chapter 7, verse 1 on judging. So he goes back he farther than John MacArthur Carter. And he says that therefore, Jesus is still speaking about judging right here. So he connects that. But myself, and along with others like V.A. Carson and Steve Gregg, I see, or they see, verse 12 as the summary of Jesus' entire sermon here on the Mount. That, and that's how I do it. That in verse 12, Jesus is basically landing the plane in his sermon and he's beginning to conclude his talking. So now he's bringing home the heart of his message or he's giving us his thesis, if you will. And that thesis is, I'm going to state it in the negative. That thesis is the kingdom of God. Of heaven or the new heavens, new earth, among other things, is not possessed by people who are not in right relationship with their fellow man and fellow woman. That's a way of summarizing this teaching that the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, heaven. The new heavens, new earth, among other things, among other things. I'm not saying that's the only thing. I'm saying among other things is not possessed by people who are in who are not in a right relationship with their fellow man or fellow woman. Another way to put it is this: one of the tentacles, just like an octopus has different tentacles, right? You know, how many uh, tentacles does an octopus have? Eight. Eight. Okay. Just like an octopus has different tentacles. The, one of the tentacles of our right relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ must be a right relationship with others. See, our reconciliation with God—that's the, that's the main thing. It has tentacles that points out to a right relationship of being reconciled with one another. And right relationship means right treatment. Treatment, and we see this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For example, if you look at Beatitude number three. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're called to display meekness to others. You, you can't just be meek on your own. You have to be meek in relationship with others. And so that those who operate in meekness, he tells us that they will inherit the kingdom of God. So God here connects the character of meekness, how we're meek towards others, with the inheritance of the kingdom of God. So he's kind again our relationship with others, with the kingdom of God. Another place where you can see that is, is the attitude number five. The less are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the one who is merciful towards others, they will receive the mercy of God. If you know God's mercy, you should show God's mercy to others. But if you don't show mercy to others, it's probably an indication that you have not known God's mercy yourself. Or you have a, too high of a view of yourself not realizing that if it's not for the mercy of God, you will be on a pathway to the hell, never experiencing light, through joy, true peace, just meandering in the darkness, but God had mercy on you, and allowed His light to shine upon you. You also see it in Matthew 5:23 where Jesus talks about anger with a brother, and He connects anger with a brother with our salvation. Someone said, if we speak words in anger, we are, um, are close to entering into hell's fire, if you summarize it in that sense. So again, he showed how our outward relationship is connected with our salvation. Another place is Matthew 5, 27, where Jesus is, is addressing lust. And by infancy, he, he tells us that the matter should only be having eyes for the spouse. We shouldn't be lusting after others. And if we are doing that, we are bringing ourselves close to hell's flame. Again, Christ is concerned about our relationship with one another. Another place you can see that if you look at the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, chapter 6, verse 12, there he ties our forgiveness with God with our forgiveness with others. He does the same thing in forking and thinking. He again ties our forgiveness with God to our willingness to forgive others. We can go on and on and on all through scripture. God ties this vertical that we have with him, this vertical reconciliation with our horizontal relationships with others. And salvation. Another place where you will see such a thing is Matthew 25. Verses uh, 31 through 46, where, where, where God, where Christ ties the inheritance of the kingdom of God with our willingness to feed the hungry, to take in the stranger, to close the naked, to visit the sick, to visit the prisoner. He ties those things with interest into the kingdom of God. Again, God is so concerned about how we treat one another. So much so that Jesus says here in our main text that the whole law and the prophets can be summed up with treat others the same way you want them to treat you. God is very concerned how I'm loving, how I'm treating my neighbor. The presence of all the law and the prophets. That's why he says the law and the prophets. That was a great expression to summarize the whole entire Old Testament. He said the law and the prophets are the law and the books. So he said the whole law and the prophets. He said that there's a central message that permeates through the entire Old Testament. A central message when it comes to our relationship with one another. And that central message is to treat others how you want to be treated. So that means now that when we go back to the Old Testament, with our New Testament glasses, and we read the law and the commandments, we now know that the central message in all of those teachings as it relates to our relationship with others is to treat others how you want them to treat you. That's what we see. And we see explicit, we see that uh, explicitly in different books of the Bible, particularly in the three law books of uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. I'm going to give you some examples of that. Leviticus, I'm gonna read a couple of verses and you're probably not gonna be able to keep up with me, but if you just listen, you'll you'll catch it. Leviticus 1934. since it says, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. And guess what? You shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Right there, he is in, he is connecting. Um, people, he's, he's making them think, he's, he's making them realize how you treat others, you should be treating people the same way, or how you want people to treat you, you should be treating people the same way. He says, why? Because you yourself were aliens, you you yourself were strangers, so you should be treating them well because you know how it feels to be a stranger. And here's an interesting note, the Bible uses the word stranger, but do you know what that is the equivalent of in our 2018 modern day? That would be the immigrants immigrant. So I can read this verse and saying that immigrant who resides among you shall be as the native among you and you shall love him the immigrant as yourself for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Saying so you should be treated you know, the same way you want to be treated because you know what that feels like. Another place is Exodus 22, 21. He says you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. He keeps putting them in the place of themselves. Remember, you were like this. You didn't like being wrong. You didn't like this oppression. So you can't treat them the same way. Again, he's reminding them. what you by, you want to be treated. Remember who you were, where you were. Exodus 23, 9. says, you should not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger. For you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. Again, he's reminding them. Deuteronomy 10.19 So show your love for the alien for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. It keeps going on and on. Deuteronomy 23.7 You shall not detest an Edomite for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. Remember who you are. Remember what you've gone through. Remember how it felt being in that situation. Remember that. Now, Now treat other people the way you would want to be treated. See, that's the, the central message. What, what the Lord has shown us in those verses that He's expecting empathy. He's expecting for you to put yourself in the place of another and how you would want to be treated. That is how you should treat others. That's the way that we have to live this life as followers of Jesus. The Lord tells us this is the law and the prophet. When it comes to our relationships with one another, this is the law and prophet. How you, how you treat one another. This is what this is the central message in the law and prophets. This right relationship with one another, right interaction with one another. This is what the Old Testament of Tanakh is essentially did. We also found the same summary of the Old Testament back in Matthew as well, Matthew twenty-two, verses thirty-four through forty. If you remember that there was a Jewish lawyer that came to Jesus and he's asked him about what of you know the greatest commandments. And this Jewish lawyer, um, so he asked that to Jesus and when Jesus says, you know, the first one is you should love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. That's the first, the chief and greatest commandment, Jesus says. But then he says the next one is this. Number two is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of the prophets. Loving God, loving neighbor. Loving God, loving neighbor. That's the law and the prophets. Summarizes the same thing that Jesus, uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 7, he says, see end in Matthew 22. He's trying to bring it home that it matters how you interact. It matters how you treat one another. And I love how our Lord, I love how our Lord in his main text, Matthew 7 12, I love how he makes sure that there is no ambiguity or there's no vague treatment of our neighbor. Meaning he doesn't just say, go ahead and treat your neighbor well. Because anybody can interpret well to be whatever well means. Or he doesn't go and say, go and treat your neighbor really good or really nice. Pretty big, and because you can use that and mean to me whatever you want it to mean, it's all relative. If that was the case, and then even more, I, I thank God that He did not say, "Love your neighbor as you love God," which would have been a disaster because our love for God ebbs and flows. We don't consistently love God like we well, like we ought to, but guess what? We consistently love ourselves. <laughs> We may not love God all the time, but that is, that is where the consistency comes in. We are very consistent of loving ourselves. As a matter of fact, the reason why our love for God ebbs and flows is because of love for self. See, one of the biggest misconceptions in our society is that we don't love ourselves enough. Right. Often here, well, if I just learned to love me, or just learn to love others, then, then I could learn to... Then I want to love others um, like I've learned to love myself. But if I don't know how to love me, then I can't love others. And that is such a lie. I remember here at Francis Chan saying, we, we're, we're, we're obsessed with ourselves. He like, anytime you come around, we're always talking about you. We're talking about your feelings, what you're going through, how, how you had this, what, what happened at work, or how you were treated. It's, it's all about you. It's always all about us. We really, we love ourselves plenty. So, a, a lack of love for self is not really the case, but like you can see that it was love for self that brought about the fall of man in the garden. Think about Adam and Eve in, in Genesis 3.6. The scripture says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, which is so, she took from it and ate. See, it, it's self. We, we've been obsessed with self from the beginning. It's not a lack of love for self that's missing. It's a lack of love for God. Which is because of self. Because we're so in love with ourselves. See, we're not, we're not stuck in that area. In my life, I've seen the drug addict with a family spend most of their paycheck on the drug of their pleasure. I've seen a a drug addict steal from their kids to buy the drug of their pleasure and guess what? At that moment, they're not thinking about love for kids. They're not thinking about love for family. They're not thinking about love for God. They're thinking about love for self. What makes self feel good? What gives me pleasure? See, that's why God, or that is why Christ here is using self as the rubric or the measure for which we should treat others, because we constantly love ourselves. That's why self is used as a, the, rubric or the, the metric here in the text. Think about Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 28 to 29, he says this, he says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their what? Own bodies. Because we are going to love ourselves. Again, the scriptures, God is using self as the metric, as the rubric on how we ought to treat others. Why? Because we love ourselves. He continues by saying in this verse in Ephesians, He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes cherishes it. Why? Because we love ourselves. That's why the Bible's constantly bringing this out. He's using this as the metric, as the rule for how we ought to treat others. It's how you would want yourself to be treated. I say this in a comical sense, but there's a a true point to this. Many churches, with good heart and good intentions, they want to feed the poor and feed the hungry, and churches will often go out and and get bologna sandwiches. And, you know, some bread maybe they get it from the pale spot so they get the freshest bread but they go out and get bologna sandwiches and and I get it bologna sandwiches feeds a lot of people it's cheap and you can help a lot of people I get it but when it comes to a church barbecue our church picnic we're not feeding ourselves bologna sandwiches <laughs> when, when it comes to a church picnic we're having barbecue chicken we're having barbecue steak we're having not just a Hot dogs with all the stuff that we don't know what's in it. We're having beef hot dogs. <laughs> we're, we're having macaroni salad. We're having baked pies. We're having baked goods. We're having soda. We're having juice. Why? Because that is what ourselves. That is what we like. But when it comes to others, it's always let's just do the bare minimum. See, we have to really look at ourselves, examine: Are we really treating people like we want to be treated? That's why this text is so hard. It's we don't even realize the stuff that we do. We have to learn to treat others how we want to be treated. Now I have to say when I want to come to this text, when I initially was studying this text, then what? I was not impressed. Or you joined to be impressed by God, right? Or uh, thinking of somebody that needs to be impressed. I was not impressed because, I'm just being honest, I'm saying to myself, I'm saying, okay, Christ. You left the fellowship of the trinity. You put on human flesh. You waited for 30 years to begin your public ministry. And then one of your earliest sermons, the message you get is treat others how you want us, or how we want to be treated. I'm saying, saying, Jesus, come on, give me some of that deep stuff, Jesus. Give me some of that stuff that makes me say, ooh, that was deep. Like When when I read this, Jesus, I'm not impressed. Especially considering the fact that there were many. There has been many gurus. There have been marriage, many other religions. There have been many other speakers. Guess what? Who have said similar to things? Similar things that Jesus has said about the treatment of others. Guess what? Before Jesus said it, the golden room was was stated by people way before Jesus. And so, so I'm reading this, and I'm saying, Jesus, well, I'm not impressed by this. Jesus, people have been saying this forever. For example, D. A. Carson points out is that. Rabbi Hillel, which was a hundred years before Christ, taught this. What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. This is the whole law. Sounds familiar? All else he says is explanation. So Rabbi Hillel here, he's teaching the golden rule, but he's teaching the golden rule and the negative. He's saying, if you don't want nobody to be hateful to you, you don't be hateful to them. So when I look at the golden rule, what Jesus is saying, I'm saying, Jesus, I'm, this is not crazy, unique here. Jesus, this is, this is not mic my, or my, uh, drop. Jesus, you know, mic drop—that's a colloquial term when you're saying something profound and finally You said it. They dropped the mic, right? So I'm, I'm saying, Jesus, this, this is mic. This is not mic drop worthy. This, this is not profound. Like, why am I not being struck by this? And here's the thing: when the Holy Spirit going to life. The words alone treat us how you want them to treat you. The words alone may not be profound. But what makes this statement profound is the one who saved. That's what makes this profound. And I mean this by this. See, when Jesus was up there talking on the mountain, some people heard a prophet or a potential prophet speaking. When Jesus was up there on the mountain in the Sermon on the Mount, some people heard a Messiah or a potential Messiah, they were trying to figure out, is he the Messiah, is he a prophet? They didn't know all who he was. So when he's up there speaking, they're hear either a Messiah or they're hearing a potential Messiah. They're trying to figure out if is really the Messiah. But to us, because we have the full revelation of God, we don't just hear him up there talking, just like some of the crowd do, we don't just hear a potential Messiah talking, just like some of the crowd do, but when Jesus speaks, we hear the voice of God himself, because we believe and know that Jesus is God in the flesh, so when Jesus says that we ought to love one another as we ought to love or treat others how we want to be treated, we know that this is the heart and mind of God that's what makes Jesus' statement so deep. And we see that the heart and mind of God is one, that you want to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. But then, number two, His commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. That's why this statement is profound. That's great that other men and other religions and other gurus have taught the golden rule. Yes, it promotes human flourishing. But they were just that, they were men. So, but Jesus, when he speaks, it's God in the flesh. And so even if he says something that's already been stated by somebody else, it's still more profound than what he states it because now we know we are getting at the heart and mind of God. See, it, this tells us that it really grieves the Lord when we tear down one another with our lips, or with our thoughts, or with our fists. Because God is concerned about how we treat one another. It it really bothers the Lord when we treat others unjustly. See, verse 12 tells us a lot about the heart of God. It's not just do the golden rule because it's such a great thing, but we do the golden rule because it's pleasing to our Lord when we do good towards others. We're not just doing good for goodness sake. But we're doing good because we know that these, these ways, this is the heart of my Lord, this is the heart of my Savior, and this brings Him joy, so i walk in this. That's what makes this verse. It tells us about the heart of God. But it not only tells us about the heart of God, this verse also tells us about the heart of man. Because when, when, I, when I read this statement, in verse 12, when I come to it, treat others like you want them to treat you. It can seem axiomatic, meaning it could be a self—it seems like a self-evident truth. Like you don't have to teach this because you can go to a random person on the street. You can go to a, a homeless person. Doesn't matter if they're homeless. You can go to a wealthy person. You can go pick a random woman or man on the street, and you can ask them to tell me what the golden rule is. And guess what? They'll tell you. Treat others like you want to be treated. We find it taught from kindergarten on up to go to the room. Treat others like you want to be treated. So the world understands the doctrine of teaching, but here's the thing. Romans, Romans 3.20 says this. It tells us that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Romans 5.20 tells us this. That the law came in so that transgressions would increase. Why? Because the law is contrary to our sinful nature. It exposes us. And so when Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 12 that all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in treating your neighbor as you want them to treat us, what he is saying is that this law is contrary to our sinful nature. You would naturally not want to do or treat us the way you want to be treated. He's telling us that outside of God giving us this commandment, we would not naturally do it. This verse really exposes the heart of man. He has to give us his teaching. Because we won't naturally do it. We will naturally not love one another. We will naturally not carry out the golden rule. It's the law. It comes from the law. The law is contrary to us. We don't naturally want to keep the law. So he shows us that the golden rule is something that people may know. Yes, people may have the understanding, but the golden rule is not something that is practiced. Or the golden rule is not something, or the golden rule is only practiced when it's practically convenient. I think about a couple weeks ago, my son named Maya, he he, he scraped his toe before he went to bed. And so um, my wife and I, we didn't have any band-aids, so we made like a makeshift band-aid with toilet paper and scotch tape. (laughs) And so we're we're trying to fix his foot, because he's whining, so we're like, we're going to do whatever we can to help a little baby. So we fix his foot, and he goes to bed. Nehemiah wakes up 4 in the morning. Dad, mom, my foot is hurting. Now we're yelling at him. Go to bed, boy, what are you doing? Why are you coming here? Go to sleep. 5 in the morning. Dad, mom, my toe is hurting. Nehemiah, you don't go to bed. <laughs> and then it hit me. I could it. It hit me that how would I want to be treated if that was me if I was in that circumstances situation? And when it was daytime, our owners before we were asleep, yes, we were willing to go and help me and my. We even made a makeshift bed because we didn't have anything. But when it came to four or five in the morning, when it's inconvenient to us, when we were sleeping and we're tired, now we're yelling at them, saying, "Go away." See, we may carry out the golden rule when it's convenient, but do we carry out the golden rule when it's not convenient? Yes, it's easy to go and help the homeless when my cabinet or pantry is full. It's, it's easy to go and help the homeless when my bank account is full, but what about when my bank account is low? What about when I don't have much food? Yes, it's, it's easier to go and help somebody that I know, a friend, but what about that stranger that I don't know? Then the golden rule becomes a lot tougher. It becomes a lot harder to really carry really out all little See, our society, And the golden rule are like some of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Because they know the teaching or the doctrine of the golden rule. Our society teaches the doctrine or the teachings of the golden rule. But when it actually comes to living out the golden rule, our society does not do that. And and we see that in many ways throughout church history. We've seen that. And one of the ways we see it is... If you go back to the early 1900s, for example, during the early 1900s, people of color, largely black, were lynched. They were ostracized. They they weren't allowed to vote. Um, They weren't allowed to live in certain communities. I remember my grandma telling me she had to order her food from the back of a restaurant. But guess what? While this was happening, the church was still sending out missionaries, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church was still sending money to missionaries. The church at the time had great doctrine. The church at the time had great teaching. They're fulfilling the Great Commission by sending disciples and, and sending missionaries all over the world. But when it came to Matthew 7 and 12, it was swept under the rock. When it came to me, actually, loving my neighbor right across the street from me, he was swept under the rug. But oh, we had great doctrine. Oh, we had great theologian. Oh, we had great teaching. See, it's one thing to have great teaching, but it's another thing to have great practice. And especially us in the Reform Camp. Because in the Reform Camp, we're, we're all Reform. We listen to Reform speakers, we read uh, books by Reform artists. And in a reform camp, we can really love good doctrine. We can really love great teachers, and we can really love great theologians. And we love to talk a lot about scriptural knowledge and feverism and, and how much doctrine is, and how solid people are. But we can forget that you actually got to live your doctrine. And so, and so Jesus is, is, is showing that we cannot forget this, my brothers and sisters. We cannot forget that we actually have to love our brothers and sisters, that we actually have to treat others like we want to be treated. And it's not going to be something that we just naturally do, but this is something we have to work at. This is something we have to be intentional with because we already seen the mistakes of the church in the past, so we have to be conscious of our treatment of one another. You can't just expect that we got this figured out. That that is you, our brother and sister, if you believe that That you owe this this teaching right here of loving others, how treating others, how we want to be treated. If you believe that you got this commandment, now that you have fulfilled this commandment, my brothers and sisters, you are very deceived. You are very deceived because Jesus goes on and teaches in verse thirteen that the narrow road is very difficult and hard, and everything that Jesus is teaching us here is the narrow road. See, if you look at verse 13, Jesus, he's given us a description of two gates and two roads. He tells us that there's a, there's a wide gate that leads to a broad road, and he tells us that there's a small gate and has a, a narrow road. And Jesus, in his sermon, teaches us what the narrow road, the road that leads to life, looks like. He teaches us that all throughout the Beatitudes, all throughout chapter 5, all throughout chapter 6, he's teaching us what the narrow road looks like. And so if the the narrow road can be defined by what Jesus has taught us in chapter 5 and 6, because verse 13 and 14 are a contrast to one another, we can understand by inference what the broad road looks like. So, for example, if the narrow road is treating others like you want to be treated, the broad road is to do the opposite, to just think about self and to be self-centered. What do I want? What do I need? If the narrow road is to turn from lust, the broad road is to indulge in lust and to indulge in the desires of the flesh. If the, if the narrow road is let your yes be yes and your no be no, the broad road says that whatever you want, whatever you have to do to get you say it and you do it. If the narrow road means the turning of the cheek, the broad road is, if you slap me, I'm going to destroy you. See, the narrow road is not an easy road. And that's why I say, if you think that you have mastered verse 12, you are severely deceived. Because this narrow road that leads to life, Jesus says that you find it. And it is not an easy road. But the, the narrow road is the road less traveled. So you can't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, since Jesus says that few find this around, that when you go out and share the gospel, many people are not just running in to get it. Because Jesus says that there are a few people that find it. And oftentimes when you are going to share the gospel, you're going to get a response like this. You're going to tell people about Jesus and about being a Christian. And as you're telling people about Jesus and being a Christian, here's what they're going to start doing. They're going to start sizing up the gate. They going to start saying things like, "If I become a Christian, I can't do that. I can't do this. I have to do that." See, when they're doing it, they're sizing up the gate, and they said that, that that gate is too small. See, see, the broad road, the broad road allows you to go off and do whatever you want to do. That's why the broad road—you don't have to stay on this narrow. You don't have to stay obedient to God. The broad road allows you to move and kind of just do what you want. You can't do that on the narrow. road. So people are looking at the narrow road and saying, narrow road and broad road. I, I don't know. It's this is narrow. This is small. I can't just be me. I can't be self centered. See, that's why that's the response. People are gauging the living gates. She's sharing the truth. I've had this conversation with many people, and they just think about, oh, I can't go to the club if I, if I become a Christian, or oh, I can't smoke, and I can't do this. See, they're, they're gauging the size of the gate, and they do it. It's small. It doesn't fit within their world. That's why there's a world, it's a gate. That's less travel, just narrow, road, just narrow this narrow thing. So my brothers and sisters, when it comes to the text, when it comes to the scripture, Jesus gets the spirit, this Christian life is going to be a battle. It's not going to be easy. That's why it's called a narrow, hard road, depending on which translation that you have. But on this narrow and tight road, Jesus calls us to love a neighbor as himself. Jesus calls us to treat others like we want to be treated. And I know that some of us in here have been the victims of racism, of prejudice, of sexism. We all know what it feels like to be treated unfairly, to be lied on. And we don't like it. We, we want to be treated with respect, with dignity. We prefer to be given the benefit of the doubt as opposed to thinking the worst of. But the problem is. We live in a fallen world with corrupt human nature. a world where there are many wide dates and broadcasts. And sadly, it's going to lead like that into the day that Christ returns. So the challenge for us, the challenge for us as the leaders is to walk on this narrow road, even when we are being treated worldly and unjustly, to not respond in like manner. But we still see others how we want to be treated. Even when we're not giving the same we're submitting back to us. That is our challenge, my brothers and sisters. It's great that we want to go and share the gospel. Yes, let's do that. That is pleasing to the heart of God. But also what's pleasing to the heart of God is that we love one another and we treat each other how we want to be treated. Jesus says that is the law <clears throat> and the problem. That's the narrow road. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for your word. God's path that we walk along is narrow. Oh, God, guide us as we walk along. Guide us by your Spirit, Lord God. We can't carry out this commandment without being made, without your Spirit working inside of us. Oh, Lord God, we want to be pleasing to you in all ways. So God, move with us in a mighty way. We stay on this path. That leads to life. eternal life with you. This is our prayer. This is our hope. This is our desire. In Jesus' name.